called uh, Finding Truth in the Midst of Common Beliefs. And by the way, didn't uh, everything I'm hearing, all the, the testimonies I'm getting is Pastor Bo did a great job last week. So thanks. That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks for letting me go on vacation. That's cool. So, um, oh, and then by the way, uh, Angela Colbert, raise your hand over there. Uh, she just spearheaded a, an overnight prayer meeting that, and I think, I believe it's the first organized one. I don't, the, to my knowledge, that we've had at this church um, last night into this morning. And just thank you for your heart for prayer and intercession. And there's some really good stuff that's come out of that. So, cool. Thank you, Angela. Our main text for this series comes out of Second um, Timothy th- uh, chapter four, verse three through four. It says, "For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching, having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths." Hence the name MythBusters. And, and obviously, if, for those of you that watch any type of television, you know we stole the, the series name from a popular television show. But here's a couple things just for us to uh, wrap our brains around. First of all, um, just some true or false. We've been doing this every week, and uh, all of you are looking forward to a little bit more trivia here, right? Uh, first, here's this. True or false, there is no gravity in space. False. False. Since astronauts appear to be weightless in space, there's an assumption that that space is a place with zero gravity. While there is less gravity in space, the idea um, that there is none is factually incorrect. There isn't just gravity on Earth, on the moon, or even the sun. It's all around us. Gravity uh, is responsible for keeping our feet planted on the ground, and it's also the way that planets and satellites maintain their orbits. So uh, that's pretty cool. Good to know. If you didn't know that, now you know that there is actually gravity in space. Um, here's, here's another one, maybe, uh, maybe one that uh, I, I know some of you were thinking about this, and so we're going to debunk this right here. Um, true or false, there was a time when safety coffins were made to alert someone in case you were buried alive. Okay, and there was a string attached to a bell or a flag. What, true or false? There were there safety coffins. That way, if you were buried alive, you could alert everybody. True or false? It's true. In the late 19th century, William Tebb tried to to compile all the instances of premature burial from medical sources of the day. He managed to collect 219 cases of near premature burial. 149 cases of actual premature burial, and a dozen cases where um, dissection or embalming had begun and not on a not yet deceased body. The concern over being buried alive back then was so real that, uh, that it must have had a hot ticket item for the wealthy and paranoid where um, it was safety coffins. Uh, that allowed those inside to signal the outside world, usually by ringing a bell or uh, some by raising a flag that they should awake the people that are six feet under. So that's just good to, good to know. I don't know that they're still around to this day, but they were, uh, you, could, you could get those back then. 
Uh, and then the last one here, is it possible to find someone completely frozen and then thaw them out and then they live? Right? There's been movies about this, right? Uh, was it Forever Young or something like that? Mel Gibson? So it is true. In 1981, and that's not even that long ago. I was, I was a year old. <laughs> All right. In 1981, Gene Hillard was literally frozen stiff like a piece of me out of a deep freeze when a friend found her in the snow after a night of 22 below zero temperatures. But the 19-year-old made an unusual recovery. Dr. George Sather, who helped treat the young woman, said she was frozen stiff. Literally, it's a miracle. So in case you guys are wondering all that stuff, just wanted to clear the air there. So... What's a myth? A myth is an unproved or false collective belief that is used to justify an established set of norms. And so our thought for this whole series has been this. Understanding truth in the midst of common uh, beliefs gives us something solid to build upon as well as repairs and prevents destructive cracks in our foundation. So the first week was a myth that Satan knows our thoughts and we debunked that. The second myth was God wants you happy. And if you were here, you got to see me do a little dance on the stage to the happy song. Myth number three is we aren't supposed to judge other people. And we debunked that. In fact, I would just encourage you. I'm speeding through these ones because I've got a lot to say today. So uh, uh, we're, gonna, we're just going to get right to it. But Go back and listen to some of those because uh, you, you want to debunk the myths because if the more you believe the lies, the more there's cracks in your foundation. And so today, drum roll please, myth number four, God helps those who help themselves. All right? So we're going we're gonna to talk about this one. God helps those who help themselves. And so first, uh, we need, you always want to look at stuff in context, right? And, and you want to read before and after and all this and look at stuff in context. And so I'd like you to turn to Hezekiah chapter 6. And as you turn in there, what? Was that funny? It was funny because it's not a book of the Bible. God helps those who help themselves is not, is not anywhere in the Bible. And so that, that's, that's at least going to be our starting place, just to know that it's not a verse, okay? There is no Hezekiah, and there's no Hezekiah chapter 6. First, this, the myth was, it was popularized by Benjamin Franklin in his Poor Richard's Almanac, if you guys have, have heard of that or read that. And then Benjamin Franklin actually got it from Aesop's Fables. Um, there, was a, there was a particular fable with Hercules and the Wagoner, and it was, a, it was in the 6th century B.C. And this Wagner was stuck in the mud. He cried out to the god Hercules, who was the god of strength, for help. And evidently, Hercules shouted back, Put your shoulder to the wheel. The gods help those who help themselves. Whoa, isn't that interesting? So it came straight from the mouth of Hercules, if you were wondering about that. Truth is, 75% of teenagers, when polled, um, actually believe that this myth is the central theme of the Bible. 
Um, a while back, Jay Leno, um, when he was doing his, what was it called, The Tonight Show or The Late Show or something like that, he had a thing called jaywalking. And uh, he would go out in the streets and he would ask people stuff like this, like what was uh, one of the Ten Commandments, just to see who, who knew uh, what one of the Ten Commandments were just on the street. And the most popular response to one of the Ten Commandments of the Bible was God helps those who help themselves. It's really interesting. George Barna, a church researcher, he actually um, did some polling and some, some uh, scientific research and said that 68% of born-again believers believe this myth. That's kind of interesting. 68%. So there is a chance that at least one of you walked in today, and, and if I were to say, did you know God helps those who help themselves, you'd say, oh yeah, of course, it's in the Bible. It's interesting. So here, let me, let me just tell you this. There, the fact is that there's a measure of truth to the statement. There, there's a measure of truth to it. it at, but at best, it's a half-truth. And, and so it's, it's really like a nugget of truth wrapped in a lie. You know, like if you have ever, um, you know, made brownies or cake and, and put a little special ingredient of like dog poop in there, you know, where you can't really, you know, it, it looks the same color. You know, you could barely, you know. Would, would any of you, I mean, if you knew, I mean, it was just like a, just a pinch, would you, would you eat it? I mean, just a, like probably just dried up and sprinkled over the top. No? No, no nobody? You know? And so you got to be careful believing things that are sort of true. Because sort of true is still not true at all, Right? And so we've got to be able to unpack this here and say, so, so what is true about this and what isn't true? And, and I'll tell you what, there's a, there's a huge core principle of this phrase, God helps those who help themselves, that if you truly just are banking on that, um, man, you're in a world of hurt. Uh, so here, here's, the, here's the main thought today. While God requires personal responsibility for the believer and desires to partner with us to accomplish his plans, the truth is that God helps those who are helpless. Thus the central message of Christianity. Wouldn't you agree with that? God helps those who are helpless. Our main text today, Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 11, you can follow along, says, For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Isn't that powerful? I just love to just put it all plain and simple right there on the table. Guess what? God helped me when I was helpless. God helped you when you were helpless. At the end of the day, the central theme of Christianity, of why even Jesus had to come, was because 
God doesn't help those who can help themselves. He helps those who actually can't do anything about it, who actually can't deserve it. Who, there, there's, there's no good deed I could do to deserve it, and there's no bad deed I could do to undeserve it, right? I mean, it is really in spite of me. Or maybe it was because of me. Maybe he actually looked and was motivated by my helplessness. I don't know. And looked and saw how helpless I was and had compassion on me and love on me and decided because of their helplessness, I will help. So I want to unpack this just a little bit and there's just a few thoughts I have for the remainder of this hour and a half that I have to preach. So what's the truth? What's the truth here? The truth about this myth that God helps those who help themselves. Well, first of all, first, this first part, no, number one, my part. There's a whole deal of, of my part in the Bible or, or my role. And, and so there, there, there is something about this myth. The reason why we get caught up in, oh yeah, that's, well, I guess that's kind of true, is because it is kind of true. Because there is an aspect of this myth that, that is true. And there's a, the aspect is, is that I have a role to play. And you have a role to play. There's a co-laboring principle in, in Scripture where I do my part and God does His part. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9 says, For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. But the deal with this whole my part and His part, this is about mission. This is about purpose. This is, this is about, about this, this overarching theme of my life that I'm put here on this planet for something. This has uh, little to do with my salvation. In fact, nothing. This is, just, this is just me and God. You know, what's the meaning of life? Have you ever just sat there and just thought, like, why, why am I here? I was, I was talking to someone recently. Why am I here? Why was I even put here? You know? What's my purpose? What's my, what's it? And, and every once in a while, I just wonder if God's looking back at you and just saying, do something. Right? Uh, this is just me. I, uh, this is just the way, the way I process. I think that some of us in here probably have enough prophetic information and words to sink a ship. Now, not Everybody. It's possible that there's someone in here that, that you've never had somebody speak a prophetic word, that God, uh, that, to your knowledge, has never uttered something, that there's, that there's literally, you've never had a sense of purpose from the Lord or from somebody else speaking from God. But there's a lot of people in this room, especially with the culture we've created in this church, that I would just venture out to say that some of you have enough prophetic information to sink a ship. In other words, you already know what to do and you're not doing it. He already spoke, and you're just waiting. You know, we, um, I have, the, in my career, I have the privilege of just talking with people, and whether it be in my office or out for coffee or whatever, and, and you know, they want to get unstuck. Any of you want to get unstuck? You don't have to raise your hand if you don't want to, but some of you, some of you brave souls, right? You know, just want to get unstuck. Want to get unstuck in life. I want, I want something to, you know, I, I feel like I'm just going, anyone ever said, I feel like I'm just going nowhere fast. I feel like I'm just on a treadmill and, and it's just, I'm just going nowhere and they just want to get unstuck. And it, this is just one thing, this is just a thought. I think sometimes we over-spiritualize this being stuck. 
where we sit here and we just, and it's almost like we're, we're waiting on God. And I just think there's, there are times when God's waiting on you. Where he's saying, I told you what to do, now do it. I, I've told you, some of you guys this before, and some, and some of you maybe haven't been around, but I, um, I wrote a book, and the, the biggest thing about the book was this, was that, was that it was part of my prophetic destiny. That it was, it was more than just a, a dream. It was something that I had sensed that God wanted me to do. But did you know this? That I had sensed it for years. I had sensed it for, since, you know, I was, I mean, it was probably 15, 20 years I had sensed it. And I'd wrote, written some articles. I'd written some blogs. I'd done some different things like that. But I never wrote the book. And I had prophetic word after prophetic word and all this type of stuff. And I never did it. And finally, a friend of mine just said, so why haven't you written your book? And I gave all these excuses and stuff. And, and I realized that, that I, at the end of the day, the reason why I hadn't written the book was because I hadn't written the book. <laughs> we just went deep, man. <sighs> Sorry, just for, for, for those of you that aren't with me. I, I just hadn't written it. I never woke up one day and, like, on my nightstand, you know, like, all of a sudden, supernaturally, there was a book, and the Lord's like, hey, just put your name on it, you know? Like, it didn't, it didn't happen that way. What happened was, is that he put the book inside me and said, now write it. And I came into agreement with that destiny, that prophetic word of my life, by actually whipping out the laptop and, and typing. <laughs> and then by one day... Uh, getting an editor and a couple others and, and, and having some readers and, and, and letting this thing form and shape. And then I pressed print and, and it was a manuscript and we sent it. You know what I'm saying? Like there was a big do attached to this thing. And so there is truth in this, in, in the aspect of, that God helps those that help themselves. There is an aspect that I have a role to play and that God absolutely steps in and gives me. There were so many times I wanted to give up on the dream and on the prophetic word. There were so many times I was discouraged. And man, I could tell you time after time again where God just came through. And there was even just I, in the midst of a time where I wanted to just throw in the towel, this prophetic word came back to me from, from Mitch Stroda. Some of you guys know him. And it was just so encouraging in the moment that it just kept, I'm, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep doing this. I'm just way off here. I don't know where I'm at now. There's the thing that, that happens a lot of times with this um, my part and God's part is that we get stuck in the I don't know. Any of you, any of you like your famous phrase is I don't know? Any of you, somebody asks you, well, you know, what are you, you going to do in life? Well, I don't know. You know. When are you going to do that? I don't know. This is the thing. This is what you find out about I don't know. You want to know about I don't know? The truth is, is that you do know. The truth is, is that I don't know is one of the biggest cop-outs. And, and in fact, it, what it really is, is you're saying that you're choosing not to find out. At the very least, you, if, you're, if it's true that you don't know right now, you have every resource to find. You want to know how I know this? Well, what's the Bible say? The Bible says that the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. How much truth? That's a lot. The Bible says that you have the mind of Christ. Whose mind? Christ. 
So for me to say I don't know means that I am not pressing in for the information, that I'm not asking, that I'm not waiting, that I'm not, I'm just, well, I just don't, really what, for most, and I'm not poking this at anybody or shooting at it, but guess what, I don't know, what it really means is I'm afraid to find out. At the end of the day, uh, if, I, if I did know, I'd be responsible for the information. And so there's this whole deal where God is waiting. I think he's waiting on just uh, on the, his tippy toes, just wanting somebody to do something with what he's given them and, and so that he could step in and, and help the process. I think it's like, it's like James chapter 4 when it says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. I think that there's times it's like everything inside him wants to just come and make it happen and he's waiting for even just a step, even just a, a part. Man, I don't know. That's, well, I guess I do. I guess I do know. Number two. The first one was, was my part. This is, as we're pressing in for the truth of God helps those who help themselves, there's an aspect of my part. There's also an aspect of my fruit. There's, there's a fruit of our life. The, Galatians 5 talks about the fruit of the Spirit, the a Spirit filled believer that there's actual there's fruit of character that comes out but there's there's fruit the the one thing I found out about fruit is that fruit comes as a result of a seed being planted just found that out in fact I also found out this last week that we have a horticulturist on staff Bo Koppelman, would you please stand? No, you don't have to stand. I don't know if you really are one. But he, one thing I found out about him was that he professionally, was it professionally? 4-H, 4-H. Well, semi-professionally, <laughs> semi-professionally arranged flower arrangements for like 10 years. And I did not know that. That's pretty cool. So if you ever need something, um, there you go. But so there's a whole deal of of you had to plant a seed in order to get the fruit. There's a sowing and reaping, and so you have, you understand this that while it's true that we are given things we don't deserve, there is a clear sowing and reaping principle in the Bible. As a good father, God steps in and gives us things we haven't worked for, but also as a good far, father, He wants us to reap what we sow. And that's good. I love that he breaks the rules sometimes and just gives me what I don't deserve. Anyone like that? It's like he has principles and sometimes he goes outside of that just because he likes me. I love that. But he's also a God of principle. And the fact is, is that we reap what we sow. So there is this part of me doing something. Take finances, for instance. You know, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 says, But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Oh, he's all right, Keith. He can come up. He can help. He'll probably help me better. (laughs) Did you know that? He who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Well, what's that talking about? It's talking about your money. Oh, we're going we're gonna to do a whole series on finances coming up here soon. I'm not going to tell you when because I want you to show up. <laughs> I'll give you a little sneak preview here. Malachi chapter 3, verse 8. 
through 11 says, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, In what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and try me now in this. Another version says, Test me now in this. Says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it, and I will rebuke the devourer, ooh, that's a good one, for your sakes, so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. There's an interesting, I I, I could pick all kinds of things, but finances is a big deal. I mean, it's because it, it affects all of us, and... And it's also really awkward, and I like awkward like moments. I just think it's, I think it's fun. But yeah, I mean, for the pastor, the senior pastor, to get up and talk about finances because all they want is money in that church, right? Well, I mean, it's kind of true, but no, not at all, not at all. The thing is, is like it's it's a subject that the Bible talks about almost more than anything else. And, and so it's one we have to pay attention to, and then I get the privilege of having to talk about it from the pulpit, and so could you at least bear with me, right? And the thing is, is that you, you reap what you sow, and if you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. There, I'll, I'll just say this, there's some of us in this room that have walked through some troubles and hardship financially and if you were to be really honest with me, you'd say, Pastor Jonathan, I'm not tithing. You're just being honest. Whether you agree with the principle or not agree with the principle, and, you know, well, the, it was an Old Testament thing. We're not supposed to tithe in the New Testament. Or whatever you want to say, you would just, if you were just being honest, you'd say, yeah, you're right. I'm not tithing. And if I were to look at this scripture and just be honest with you, it, it, there. There's a huge truth here that says that there's probably a devourer. His name is Satan. And you've walked up from underneath the blessing of the Lord and the favor of the Lord. And so there's, it's, like, it's like there's a, like a hole in your bank account. There's like holes in your pockets. And anytime you put something in, it's like, I don't know where that went. I don't know. I can't, I can't figure it out. I thought I had enough and I don't have enough. And there's all this stuff. And, and I'm just simply just saying and I, I mean, well, are, you, are you tithing? Are you at least coming up to zero? Right? Tithing? I mean, I, I like what Bill Johnson said. He was like, he's like uh, tithing is like our rent for living here on this earth. And, uh, and he can evict us at any time. <laughs> I don't know. So in this sowing and reaping, in this principle of me doing my part and him doing his part and, and the God helps those who help themselves. It, it, it is absolutely true in this, in this instance that, that if I'm faithful in obedience, right? If I'm faithful in obedience, there's going to be blessing. If I'm disobedient, there's not going to be blessing. And I don't necessarily believe that God's sitting up there like punishing everybody because you, you gave 9% instead of 10 or, or whatever. But I do believe that there's consequences. 
That when we walk out from underneath the blessing, that there's consequences. And we walk back underneath the, I'd rather walk under the blessing. And I love the fact that he blesses the 90%, and it goes a whole lot more farther than the 100%. And it doesn't make sense because it's an upside-down kingdom. And you're like, man, 100% seems to work out better in my Excel spreadsheet. But somehow 90%, like, you can, like, bless the nations with it. Isn't that crazy? All right, there you go. Um, That's a preview Coming up, we'll talk a little bit more about that. <laughs> wow. I, I went way off. John 15, because um, there's another principle of sowing and reaping. And part of this, the, the, the sowing and reaping principle here is abiding. John 15 verse 5 says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do how much? Nothing. And so in the sense of sowing and reaping, there's, I actually sow time into my relationship with God. I, I sow intimacy. I sow intentionality. There's, I, I can actually say, okay, God, like I'm taking this much time and I'm sowing it, you know, this quality time into our relationship. And the Bible says here that as I abide, abiding takes time. Abiding is more than just a good thought in theory. It's more than just I, I, I thought about it. it. Like abiding means that I'm actually, and, I, and it's going to be different amount of time for each person in, in different contexts of life. And how many know that there's some mothers in here that are fighting for some time, right? You know, and, but John 15, I guarantee you, there's a principle here that as you sow your time into the relationship with Jesus, with God, that you will bear much fruit. In other words, that seed that was sown will bear fruit. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that awesome? And so there is a huge sowing and reaping principle in this myth that, yeah, that part's true. But I want you to hear the part that's not true as I close here. I'll close for the next 30 minutes. The truth is, the last one, our need. My need. My, my need for salvation. I can't earn it. I already referenced this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. My only role in salvation is receiving this gift. Right? I just get to receive it. I mean, for me, I was, I was six years old, sitting on my bed. I barely remember the moment. I was six. My story was my mom sat next to me, and somehow in this, I, I was asking her, um, well, how do I get to go to heaven? And she led me in the sinner's prayer right there. And from six years old, I had my ticket, my get-out-of-hell uh, free card, my fire insurance, right? That's cool. That's really cool. I, I didn't have, like, the story. For instance, I wasn't saved from a whole lot. Like, maybe like addiction to bubble gum. You know what Isaiah says? This is what Isaiah says, 64.6. But we are all like unclean, like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like wind. He has taken us away. 
when Isaiah's talking about filthy rags, and I, I, I don't say this for shock value, I just say this for truth, is when he's talking about filthy rags, he's talking about um, dirty menstrual cloths. And so he's comparing my righteousness, my good, that as good as, it, and, and I don't, he's not saying my righteousness is that. He's not saying my good deeds are that. He's saying in comparison to him and to everything that he's done, all of my good, it's like someone you know, is in my office and saying, well, like, I think I've done more good than bad. Isn't that enough? Right? And, and what this is saying is that all of the good that I've ever done in comparison to God's glory and who he is is like filthy rags. And so even me at age six, and I didn't have the story of like living on the streets in a cardboard box and shooting up heroin or anything like that. You know, some of you have my story of age six, and some of you have got the other story, or somewhere in between. And the good thing is that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. <laughs> I love it. I love this thing called grace. And I'm going to touch on a little bit of theology here for a minute. And the, the danger is, is that some of you believe differently than me, and, and it's okay. It's all right. Remember we had that one uh, series a, a little bit ago where, um, where I basically said you can disagree with your senior pastor, right? This is one of those times. But I want to tell you where I come from in the area of salvation and grace, and, um, and I want to clear up some things. Uh, so, so, here, so here we go. Um, it, this is my thought. If I didn't earn salvation, then by logic and reason, I can't unearn it. And there's a theological conundrum and a theological debate that's been going on for centuries, and I'm probably not going to silence it this morning. But I'm going to just share where I come from and why, and, and then you guys can wrestle with it on your way home, and, and husbands and wives, maybe you, maybe you can fight about it on your way home. There's, um, I, I would probably say it's hands down the number one theological debate. Um, the second runner-up is probably like, when's the rapture going to happen? You know, so eternal security. And when I mean eternal security, it's this. It's, so when I, when I get saved, in other words, when, when Jesus comes into my heart and I have said the sinner's prayer and all that type of stuff, when, I, when I'm saved, is there, is there a point when I can lose my salvation? Can I, can I, can I lose it? Or is it like, you know, I do so many bad things or, or I head down a certain road that finally there's somewhere, there's a line that I can cross over or whatever, and then I was saved and I wasn't saved. And so this has been the thought. And the, the truth is, is that there's like scriptures and passages and, and things on both sides where you just wrestle with both. And so this isn't going to, in fact, this isn't a myth I'm debunking, right, by, by the way. This is, this is a, a, a theology that we wrestle with. And so, uh, and then the rapture is probably, and I'm definitely not going to, if I'm not going to, I'm, I'm not going to hit the rapture this morning, by the way. We're not going to, we're not talking about that. We'll save that for another series. But, um, but I am going to talk about this for a minute because I want you to know um, a little bit of where I come from in this. Um, and so some on the eternal security, and when we talk about that, it's the once saved, always saved, eternal security, would say that, that, uh, um, that for those that were seemingly saved and fell away, that they may have not ever been saved in the first place. Does that, does that make sense? So if you were saved, maybe you had a genuine 
you know, altar experience or you said the prayer or there was whatever it was, whatever it was for you, you're driving in your car and an angel came in and whatever it was and you were saved, that if, that if uh, you went down this road and, it, and eventually you like fell away from God and you were backslidden, that you were never saved in the first place. Well, let me tell you something about that. First of all, you can't read Matthew chapter 7 and not believe that that's true for some people. Matthew chapter 7, some people were coming to Jesus, and they said, they said so, I mean, we've, we've done a lot of good stuff. We've healed the sick. We've raised the dead. We've cast out demons. That's a good one. We've done all this stuff. And he says this. He says, depart from me. I never knew you. Oh, my goodness. In fact, I did a whole message here. I don't know. It was a while back. And, the entire, and then there's a chapter in my book that where, or somewhere in there it says the, the subtitle was, I never knew you. Wouldn't, wouldn't that break your heart? To get to the end and to have done the whiz-bang God candy stuff and for Jesus to say, I never knew you? What he was saying there in that, in that phrase was, we never had relationship. It wasn't like God didn't have recollection, recollection of your name. It was not like God, did, you know, God didn't know intellectually who you were. It, the, the word no was a relational word where it says that God, he actually didn't, didn't know them. Depart from me, I never knew you. And so there absolutely is that thought. Some people were just never saved to begin with. And, um, and that just is what it is. I, um, I think it's, we did a couple weeks ago, we did a myth called, um, uh, are, are we allowed to judge other people? Do you guys remember that? The, the whole the judging, the judging myth. And uh, this would be the, the dangerous place in the judging, would be us deciding who gets to go to heaven and hell. The, the truth is, is that we can make our best guess. And the Bible gives us indication that in the body of Christ that we should look at the fruit. And we really should, if there's somebody in danger, man, I, it is my responsibility to walk alongside them and in love point out some things and be, because I love you. Because I, do, I mean, ah, I just love you so much out of a motivation of love. And you remember that, that week that we talked about um, motivated by love and motivated by greatness in that other person. It, I, I encourage you to get that. But as far as heaven and hell, uh, we really don't know someone's heart. Our, our, we can make a good guess, but at the end of the day, I don't know their heart. And and that's a huge thing. It's a, it's a, it's a huge leap for me to make that, that claim. And so, so here's this. We have to talk about the free will. And there's this, this concept that if I can freely choose God, well, then I could unchoose him. Does it at least make sense logically? If I could choose him, well, then I could unchoose him. Someone called my office a while back and... Uh, they called me up, and uh, I don't think they'd ever called me before, but they called me up months and months ago, and they just said, Pastor, just wanted to talk to you about something. Uh, so where do you stand on this whole once saved, always saved uh, conversation, the eternal security? And I, and I said, uh, well, that's a loaded question. Um, not really easy to answer. I'm just kind of just, and, and he's, like, he's like, well, actually, it's just a yes or a no, Pastor. I was like, Oh, <laughs> really? 
So, um, so I, I kind of, I, I did, I did my best there, and, and my best is what I'm going to tell you right here. <laughs> so, uh, I hope we still have people at church next week. So here's, here's where I'm at, um, and I welcome you to wrestle with it and find your own conclusion. It's this: is that I'm as close as you could get to the line of once saved, always saved, as you can get without going over. And, and this is why. Because I believe grace is almost too good to be true. Like, doesn't it have to be almost? Paul wrestled with that because he even had to make a caveat that said, that said uh, by the way, like, grace isn't a license to sin, right? He, he had to, like, explain it and say, well, you can't just go on and just live the way you want to live. Like, grace, grace isn't that. And, and so if Paul had to wrestle with it, don't you think we have to wrestle with it a little bit? That grace is that good? Um, and so, I, man, I'm right, up, I'm right up to that line of the once saved, always saved. I, I'm right up to that line without going over. And, and here's where I don't go over. Um, I actually believe that there's, that there's choice and that people can make a choice. Uh, I, don't, I don't believe that, um, that my salvation is like the slippery bar of soap where I'm saved and whoops, I'm not saved. And, I'm saved and whoops, I'm not saved. I'm saved. Like, like, I don't, like uh, walking down the road and I cuss and get hit by a car and I must be going to hell. You know, like, like I, don't, I, don't, I don't believe that. I believe that there has to be a sense of security in our, in our salvation and that there is, and as you read the word, there is absolutely security in our salvation. There absolutely is. Um, and I also believe that, that my salvation can't be taken away from me. The enemy can't take it. You can't take my salvation. I also believe that God doesn't take our salvation away. And that's a, that's a place where people can get a hiccup. But here's this. Um, I do believe I can relinquish it. I believe that I can give it back. In fact, I know people that were saved. And I would tell you, man, I don't know their heart, and I sure, but if I were to be the judge, I would say that if they were to die today, they'd probably go to hell. And that's a scary place. I am sure glad I'm not God on that day. I'm sure glad that that's him and not me. But I know some people. I have some friends that were on fire for God, that were that we're doing the stuff, and they're not now, and it's not just the fruit. It's like, I'm, I know one, one person, you, you and I both know, and, and they're claiming atheist and, and hating God and all this. I mean, it's just like, it's just crazy. It's craziness. Hebrews 10 kind of clears it up a little bit for me. Hebrews 10, verse 26 and 27, it says this, for if we go on sinning deliberately, one, one, uh, one word, uh, version says uh, uh, willfully, it says, if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there, is, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a, and a, and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. This is hellfire and brimstone right now, by, by the way. <laughs> these, these two verses, it's really interesting here. First, you've got to understand this. is The book of Hebrews was written to a Jewish Christian audience. It was written as an apologetic letter. When I say apologetic, it meant, it's a defense of the faith. And the author of Hebrews was defending the fact through the whole book that Jesus was high priest. 
that Jesus was high priest. Well, why would that make a difference? You and I don't, we're like, oh, sure he was, of course. Well, for a Jewish person, this is a big deal. Because in, in Judaism, the priests only came from which line? Levi. And Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. And so it was a big hiccup. In fact, some of these Jewish Christians or people or even the Jews that were deciding on if they wanted to be Christian, this was a huge hiccup. Uh, in fact, almost to the point of some of them wanting to turn back and go back to the old ways because how could I follow a high priest when he's not from the tribe of Levi? And so the, the book of Hebrews, he goes on, he talks about, well, Jesus was from, uh, he comes from the high priest line of, of Melchizedek. And, and we don't have enough, enough time to unpack it, but Melchizedek, most scholars believe in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, Melchizedek represents Jesus himself. And that he was in a line forever, in a perfect line. So, it was a, so the book of Hebrews is interesting in that regard. And so in this light, as he's writing Hebrews chapter 10, he's actually talking to these Jewish Christians who are contemplating going back. And, and so when he talks about uh, that there's no sacrifice for sin, in specifically here, he's saying there's no sacrifice anymore. It, it used to be animal sacrifice. The, the way that sin was covered up before was that the, the, the blood of, of goats and lambs and bulls and all that. And, and for you, Jesus came as the one and only forever, the perfect sacrifice for sin. And there's no going back to another system. And so if you don't choose Jesus, there's no other way. There's, there is no sacrifice for sin. So th th that's the specific. In general, he's talking about this. How, this is how it applies to you and me. And as I study this verse, these two verses, that, that deliberately or willful sin, there's a, there's a big Christian Bible term called apostasy. And apostasy means this. To have an intimate knowledge of the truth. Having received an infinite, or, or, or an intimate knowledge of the truth. And then turning your back on it and rejecting it. And, and so I, I look at these two verses here, and I say that there is somebody here, and in, in, in this, these two verses, it's not talking about just some, you know, some mistakes. It's not just talking about someone that just backslid a little bit. It's not talking about just, some, like this is talking about apostasy. It's talking about somebody who is rejecting God. Not just with lifestyle, but in word, in deed. In, like, like I, I used to, to know you and believe you, and it's almost like they're giving God the finger. And they're saying, no, I'm going away. I turn. It's apostasy. It's a big deal. We, this is like the warm, the warm, fuzzy goosebump time. So some people were just never saved in the first place when we were talking about salvation. Man, you read Matthew 7. There's, there's some people like that. There's some people, I believe, choose to intentionally walk away from God. But I want to end this discussion on this thought of punishment versus consequences. Because when the, when the guy called me on the phone, here's, this, is, this is really what, what him and what all of you, what everybody's wondering this. What do we do with sin? What do we do with sin? If you believe in that much security of salvation, 
What do you do with sin? And so here's, this is what we do with sin. First of all, God's not scared of sin, and he knew what to do with sin, and it was called Jesus. And what he did was, the Bible actually says that Jesus became sin, that he took the punishment of my sin to the cross. And so this is what I believe. I believe that that the punishment of sin was taken care of. It would be an illegal transaction for me to be punished for something that Jesus was already punished for. And, And what was the punishment? Well, the punishment was death. That's what Romans 6 says. It says, for the wages of sin is what? Death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so I don't, I don't get death anymore. Jesus took it for me. How many of you want to say thank God? That's a big deal. The punishment. There, that, that was the punishment. That, that was the sentence. That, that was it. That there is, Jesus took the punishment. But here's this, and you've got to hear this. Because there's all kinds of like slippery slopes with grace. There's churches that are preaching that you can do whatever you want and, and you know, whatever. There's churches preaching that, that you never have to ask God for forgiveness again. And there's all, the, you know, all kinds of stuff. You've got to understand this. There's absolutely consequences for sin. Absolutely. Man, there's physical consequences in our bodies. There's relational consequences in, in, your, in the relationships and family and work and all this. You want to know what the biggest consequence is to me? It's distance between me and God. There's, the word righteousness is a legal term that talks about being, in a court of law, right standing before God. Legally right standing before God. And so there's, there's an aspect that I am right standing I'm legally right standing, but there's also an aspect of right relationship. You know that you can be right standing before God and not be in right relationship? You know my wife and I are legally married and we file jointly on our taxes and all that type of stuff. What if we like lived in separate states? How many know that wouldn't be right relationship? There's an aspect of our, of our relationship here with, with Jesus where he's looking at you and he's saying, he's saying, well, man, there's right standing, but I long for you to be in right relationship. There's a verse, I believe it's in Ephesians, where it says that or talks about our sin grieving the Holy Spirit. And the grieving aspect is this, is grieving when it's defined, it's an intense pain, emotional pain, over the loss of intimacy with somebody. And I'll tell you what, Holy Spirit grieves sometimes over the loss of intimacy with us. But it's not like this baseball bat angry wanting to get you. It's like, come home. Come home. Come close. Let's close this Relational gap. Man, I love it. So when we talk about God helps those that help themselves in the sense of salvation, that is absolutely false. Absolutely false because he helps those who are helpless. And he's longing right now for you and for me, wherever we're at in our journey, to close this relational gap. And... um I mean, that's what happened with the prodigal son, right? You remember? He went off, and I love the fact that he wanted to be viewed as a servant, and from the very moment, the father looked at him and said, no, you're a son. You're a son. He's in the business of helping the helpless. While we were still sinners, Christ died for you and for me. So there you go. In case you were wondering, let's stand.
This might be a good opportunity for some of you. 